May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Easter Sunday puts a pause on the world's worries. Pilgrims make their pilgrimages. Choirs belt out their alleluias. The Pope celebrates mass. Preachers mock death. The altar guild adorns the altar with the vibrant colors of spring. And for a brief shining moment, the hope of Jesus Christ risen is tangible. But then the world blinks, as it were, loses its concentration and returns its attention to other pressing matters. COVID variants in the air, a border in disarray, a boiling planet, and gun violence. Then it turns back to look for this hope again, and it's gone. An array of forces is approaching us, led by the biggest and baddest bully of them all, death. Where is that Easter bravado today? One week after, do you still believe in Easter? How? There was once a man who did not believe in Easter. His name was Thomas, the twin. We might call him Saint Skepticus. If you studied Thomas in philosophy, you'd call him an empiricist, someone who needs to see the proof, to measure what is. In psychology and medicine, maybe on the clinical side. In business, a pragmatist. For whatever reason, Thomas has separated himself from the disciples' fellowship, and when he rejoins the group, they say to him, we have seen the Lord. Have you ever been on a fishing trip where the locals have not said, you should have been here last week. Man, were the fish biting. You missed it, catching flounder this big. We've seen the Lord, Thomas. You just missed him. What is the empirical mind to make of such a claim? Perhaps he thinks, oh guys, you are suffering from the delusions and hallucinations typical of persecuted groups. Put a large enough group of terrified people in a small room, lock, chain, bolt the doors, and the terror, terror will breed itself and produce all kinds of fantasies. Thomas Ever, the empiricist, says, if I see him, I won't be taken in by this small group psychosis. I'll pull the sheet off of that spook and plunge my hand into the gash in his side. Then, and only then, you can count me as a believer. Well, Thomas was acting in character. Earlier in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus proclaims, I go to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to where I am going. It's Thomas who blurts out the empiricist question, Lord, how can we know the way? I am the way, comes the poetic reply. Uh, what? Says Thomas. We've all been to college, and there we were taught how to think for ourselves. We were taught to question everything, to put theories and propositions under scrutiny. The unexamined fact is not worth accepting. And our careers, our jobs, often follow along in the spirit of Thomas. We live in the hard world of numbers and data and deadlines and bottom lines. Prove your position. And then we come to church. Here, a different kind of logic, a different set of rules holds sway. Outside, you get three strikes and you're out. Here, you get as many as you want. We call it forgiveness. Outside, people who talk to unseen beings are sick. Here, we call it prayer. Outside, everything is the bottom line. Here, it's faith. Outside, when you're dead, you're dead. Here, we call it resurrection. Now, this church and every church stands as a mighty fortress behind locked doors against anything that threatens to spoil our logic. I still remember where I was when my housemate in college decided to stick it to this logic. He was reading a lot. He was questioning a lot. We all knew he was on a search. He was the doubting Thomas among us. Yet when he stuck out his hand into the dark, he came back with more skepticism. One evening, I think I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth. He sauntered in and said, surely you know Jesus Christ is the product of pure mythology. He said it as if it were the outcome of all liberated thought. And my friend hadn't learned it in godless physics or biology, but in religion class. A lot of people actually believe that doubt begins on the outside of church and forces its way in. We like to think that it all began with David Hume or Voltaire or Freud, and that living in the wake of such figures has made believing more difficult than for our simple ancestors. Or we think that having electricity or modern neuroscience makes faith less possible for us. As if faith has not always had to strive for even the smallest corner of the human heart. As if death were somehow less terrifying, less final for the ancients than for us moderns. But what if all that's head doubt? What if real doubt doesn't begin out there 
But in here, with the crushing disappointments of life, with the heart's inability or refusal sometimes to grasp Easter, to perceive Easter, and say, my Lord. What if it's not a matter of us against them, but me against me, or us against ourselves? Read the scripture carefully, and you'll notice that the unsophisticated, primitive Christians were infected by what we thought was a modern disease. Jesus' entire ministry was shadowed by the unbelief of those who loved him most. For every Peter who successfully walks on the sea, on the waters of faith, there's a Judas who drowned in the waters of doubt. After the resurrection, Luke tells us that when Mary proclaimed the good news to the disciples, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Read Matthew's triumphant account of resurrection and ascension when the risen Christ gathers his disciples together for the great commissioning. Matthew writes, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, most opposition to Jesus is not head doubt, but heart doubt. Perhaps no more poignantly expressed than by British novelist Julian Barnes when he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. For what it's worth, I, I don't think people skip out on church because it doesn't make intellectual sense to them. There have been plenty of people, there have been people who thought themselves into the Christian community. But that crowd is not plenty, but it's actually pretty thin. More the reason for unbelief is a struggle to figure out how the Christian story can resonate with their daily lives and struggles. A profound doubt that there can be any connection between that event in Joseph's lovely garden and the pain and complexities of life. Even the faithful miss the resonances faith can provide. Well, Thomas was no dilettante. He stands for every Christian who has had to work out his or her salvation in the face of suffering and loss. Sometimes there's nothing we would rather say than my Lord and my God, but we are feeling so oppressed by problems or bereft of hope that all that will come out are the tired expressions of doubt. Each of us lives in that searingly honest condition of the man who brought his sick son to Jesus for healing. As his boy is writhing on the ground, suffering yet another epileptic fit, Jesus says, do you believe in me? And the man confronted with two versions of a competing reality utters, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I am carrying inside me this 
terrible ability to say yes and no at the same time. And I desperately desire the release that will let me say, my Lord, my God. Sometimes what we call doubt is the first stirring of the Holy Spirit. When William Temple, later become Archbishop of Canterbury, was the Bishop of Manchester, he conducted a preaching mission at St. Mary the Virgin Church in Oxford. It was a time back in the 1920s of great unfaith at Oxford, and Temple himself was going through a crisis of belief. The students largely slept through his sermons, but sang the hymns raucously with a kind of mock enthusiasm. The preaching mission was to conclude with the singing of Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The students sang the first three stanzas boisterously as usual. But before they sang the fourth, Temple stopped the organist and said, Everyone, I want you to read the words of the fourth stanza. Those unforgettable lines. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And Temple said to them, if you believe these words, sing them as loud and as confidently as you can. If you don't believe them at all, I invite you just to remain silent. If you're struggling to believe and want to believe these words, want them to mean more, sing them softly. His biographer says that even Temple was amazed to hear the words whispered by the voices of the 2,000 women and men. Many who were there that day continue to speak of that experience, a whisper. Well, I think Thomas gets a bad rap. Why does he go down in history known by his biggest mistake? Peter isn't denying Peter. James isn't power-hungry James. I sure hope in 2,000 years I'm not impetuous Garrett. Doubting Thomas. Why, does he, why is he remembered like that? Well, I think one reason is because the church has not always been hospitable to doubt. In the 13th century, for instance, doubt was against canon law. Now, in our day and age, it can just feel like we judge ourselves as inadequate Christians. Here in church, we talk about growing and nurturing our faith and spirituality. It's our own business model. But what if we nurtured our doubts, too, ministering to each with the compassion Christ ministered to Thomas? If the doubts fester from within the community, as it does in this text from John, so the healing comes from within. 
not from within by my own dint of intellectual abilities, but from within this tattered and flawed community known as the church. To the Christian community, clinging to the testimony of the angels, Jesus says, peace, shalom to you. This is the beginning of the release from doubt. Shalom is the acknowledgement that there are no proofs for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, only witnesses. So powerful is this gift that it makes you one of those witnesses. Christ's endowment to the church is not bricks or mortar or money, but the abiding gift of peace. So when you find yourself like Thomas, overwhelmed by the sorrow of life and all you can come up with on your own are the old formulas and flailings, let go. Let go of them all. Go ahead, doubt your own doubts, and let the Holy Spirit come to you. The Holy Spirit comes not in certainty but in presence not as a fact for our heads, but a breath blowing peace into our hearts. It's the spirit who changes the paralysis of how can I know to a resurrection I know. And finally, it's the same spirit that, that God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's that same spirit who comes to us and transforms Show me the proof to my Lord, my God. Amen.